Uh, hello everyone and welcome back to the Skyrim audio adventure. I am giddy. I just finished editing and I'm just recording this right off the bat, so <laughs> bam. Oh, it was a humdinger. Such a humdinger of an episode. Ah, uh, and uh, you know what? I got through it and I got through it thanks to the support of my family, of my friends, and of course being just buoyed by the constant support of you guys, my audience. It is humbling and invigorating and sometimes a bit intimidating but <laughs> but mostly all the good stuff so all right let's uh let's get right into it quick shout out to all of my patrons and my new patrons for this episode ken's ghost and jared nilo here we go part two of chapter 15 of the skyrim audio adventure the necromancer Anise flinched, shuddered, and gasped as she was violently expelled from her trance. The glowing circle of runes in which she knelt faded back to inert carvings on the stone floor of her basement. Acrid wisps of smoke rose from the basin before her. The liquid therein had turned from a darkly lustrous chrome to an opaque purple swirling with oily, prismatic bands of color. Her basement was dark and dank, but it was homey to her. It was here that she did her best work. Or at least she had before the day these rotten, obtrusive busybodies came to her. They seemed simple enough, and she'd plied their minds with ease. Two more bodies for her dark legion, but now? The rats were coming back to gnaw at her heels. Somehow they had bested her puppet in the cauldron, and have even eluded her magnificent fell Atronach. She was confident in her sovereignty over her domain and the inevitability of her designs. But this was becoming a drain on her resources. Even with all those poor souls displaced by the Civil War, it had taken over a year to accumulate this much power, and this petty house-cleaning was not how she had planned to spend it. <sighs> Huffing in frustration, she stood, joints stiff from kneeling in her trance, and fetched a bucket from under a table. Exercising no small amount of caution, she lifted the wide basin and poured its contents into the bucket. It sloshed with a faint hiss and babbling of bubbles. It was thicker than water and quickly regained its smooth, mirrored surface. Taking the bucket in a deceptively strong hand, Anise walked up the steps of her basement, out of her cabin, through her garden, and off to the river. The woods around her were quiet. Most creatures had learned to stay away. This was fine. She grew enough to live by, and convincing unwitting travelers to hand over their food was as easy as plucking grapes from a vine. Soon she broke from the trees and made her way down to the rushing water of the White River. 
She raised her free arm to shield her eyes. The sun shone bright from both high and low as its blinding reflection waxed and wavered in the water. Kneeling at the shore, the old Nord woman tipped the bucket over and let the spent arcane mixture drain into the river. She shouldn't be doing this. There were proper ways to dispose of the gooey remnants of a conduit spell. She could burn it away with a magic flame. She could nullify its toxicity with a mix of waterwort, canis root, and bittergreen. However, since she had begun massing power on the mountain, she had become a very busy woman. Such trifles could be put aside. She could go back to protocol when she had more allies. Like-minded individuals with arcane skill and drive to match. The makings of her own coven. As of yet, the witches that dwelled in the great mountain had been silent, but they would recognize her power soon enough. As for her friend in Riverwood, she only needed to warm her cold feet. The opalescent concoction left an oily scar on the water, like rot spreading over a wounded plant. Then, after a moment, the current whisked it away to the north. After washing out her bucket, she stood briefly by the river. She'd had an eye on the channel all day. Neither of her quarry had made an appearance there. She had seen the young vagrant fleeing desperately from her fell Atronach to the west. He couldn't flee forever. He would tire and slow and make mistakes. Her pet was unbound by such restrictions. Yet where had the other man gone? The grey old hound. He wasn't with his younger companion, and she hadn't seen him since they were up on the ridgeline. Perhaps he had perished without her seeing. But if that were the case, why then did the ragamuffin not make for the river? It and the north road that ran parallel on the far side were the fastest ways to get to Riverwood, but no, he had dove right into the heart of her woods. Why would he do that if his compatriot was dead? The answer drifted into her mind just as a frayed cluster of pine needles drifted aimlessly down the current. That dilapidated husk of a man had gone by a different road, the treacherous high cliffs and snow-chilled path to the ancient barrow. She turned back to her cabin, scowling. They were trying to raise the alarm. How easy it would be if she could call on that crypt to do her bidding, but an older power held sway over that place, and she dared not encroach upon it. That said, her arm was long, and these rats would soon know it. Upon return to her cabin, she harvested some lavender from her garden and went around the back to her sizable cluster of nightshade. As she cut off several stalks with her dagger, a distant sound prodded at her ears. She raised her head. This was the second time she'd heard this today. A howl, high and long, snaked through the trees to her. It was not a wolf's howl, though it was clearly trying to be one. Was this urchin mocking her? She stormed inside her cabin and got to work. A few minutes later, a rune circle lay in front of her house, drawn on the ground with powdery bone meal infused with lavender. In the middle of the circle was a bowl, with dragon's tongue, columbine, and chicory flowers, along with the vibrant blue wings of a butterfly. Anise stepped up to the circle with a box under her arm, and knelt. She set the box down carefully and opened it. Rows and rows of clean, pristine hawk skulls lay in it, huge, empty eye sockets staring down strong, hooked beaks. 
As if she were handling the finest and most delicate of Breton tea sets, she lay the skulls within the rune circle. Once everything was in order, she stepped back into the cabin and emerged with a single caged bird. The sparrow looked weak and hunched over, having been scared into silence some time ago. Its dark little eyes darted around at its rapidly changing surroundings. All was prepared. The ritual could begin. She snapped her fingers, lighting a flame at the point, and flicked it down into the bowl. The ingredients quickly began to smolder and warp. She reached into the cage, pulling out the struggling sparrow, and holding it over the bowl, crushed it in her fist. She felt its desperate last twitches, spasming like a throbbing heart, before the warm life left it, and she dropped it into the fire. The powdered runes lit up in a bright purple that blazed and roiled without flame. The area between the runes seemed to fall away into the abyss, and black mist rose to take its place. Anise dipped her hands into the purple light, and her eyes rolled back. After only a moment's pulling at the darkness, the first of the skulls shot up into the air, a black spectral body flapping its smoking wings as it was unleashed onto the world. In rapid succession, all the skulls shot into undeath, and soon a black cloud of bone hawks were swirling over her cabin. To the west, she cried. Find the old hunter in the high trails. Bring me his corpse. The cloud spiraled higher like a storm in the wood and flew west, stretching through the trees like the very shadow of death itself. Anise smiled, now to get back onto the trail of that insolent young brigand. She kicked some dirt over the acrid black mud left by her spell and returned to her basement. Once there, she set about her toil again, for a thought had occurred. A weak, shameful thought. The kind of worry that had plagued her life before she had found her strength and seized the power to shape her world as she wished. What if she failed? What if he got close? Taking up her pestle and mortar, she ground some nightshade up with some dried redwort, the gnarled bark of a putrid tree, and that most rare and sinister of ingredients, void salts. She worked the mixture to a paste and diluted it with a bit of water. Then, having poured it into a tall vial, she submerged the blade of her trusty dagger into it. Soon she built a fire and suspended the vial over it. The water would evaporate, and the dagger would be left with a fine coat of poison. Just a little insurance, she muttered to herself, and turned back to her conduit basin, ready to cast her will back into the mountain wind. Just in case he gets lucky. Hunter breathed heavily as he pulled on the rope. Damn it all, he just needed a few more inches. That's all it would take. Gritting his teeth, he gave it one more heave. Nothing. If he let go now, it would be hell getting this far again. Thinking quickly, he pinched the rope in the crook of his arm and unslung one of the dead rabbits he had over his shoulder. Freeing it from the snare that had been its undoing, he tossed it to the stone at his back. Fingers growing tired, he wound the snare cord into the rope and tied the other end to the iron ring. With bated breath, he removed his hands. After a tense moment, the improvised knot seemed to be holding. 
The hunter nodded with satisfaction and freed the other two rabbits over his shoulder and incorporated their snares into the knot, reinforcing the rigging so it could withstand the tremendous force he needed it to. With a tired gasp, he let himself fall away from the afternoon's project and leaned over, hands on knees, spittle flying from his lips as harsh breaths hissed in and out. It had taken a large chunk out of his day, but he had gotten it done. He walked over unsteadily to his haphazard pile of gear, retrieving the rabbits as he went, and sat down. The time it had taken him to find this exquisitely defensible spot was considerable. Coupled with the toil that he had put into it, he may as well have been dragging the sun westward himself. The sky above was still bright, but the shadows were long. Twilight was a couple hours away. If his estimations of Bracknell's speed were correct, his friend would be but minutes from the barrow. Run, you old bastard. Run, he muttered as his breaths calmed. He'd had several ideas when he left the clash of the woodland titans back in the gully, but what he would do depended on what kind of terrain greeted him as he moved northeast, skirting the foothills of the Barrow Heights. For some time, he had his heart set on climbing halfway up a tree and dropping the whole top half on the beast's head. It was an alluring idea and had some poetry to it, but in retrospect, it would have been interesting with only a hatchet. As it was, the scene he found could not have been finer. A cloven rock face on a mossy rise, a wayward boulder wedged in the gap. That rock looked so close to falling down the face that it would have given a layman anxiety to stand beneath it. However, he knew that it would take a tremendous amount of force to move it. In fact, he was counting on it. He'd spent the first two hours of the afternoon chopping branches and sharpening them into stakes. Once there was a respectable forest of crude spikes at the face of the rise, he called on all his rope and iron rings to bind up the suspended boulder, and had just finished closing the final gap. Now he had nothing to do but wait, and, just maybe, cook these rabbits. He'd set eight snares a ways out from where he toiled, and a remarkable three had been successful. There must be a warren nearby. He felt quite peaceful suddenly. Perhaps it was the deadly amount of fatigue, or perhaps it was simply the confidence that this battle had all but been won. The beast could explode from the woods right now, and rend him limb from limb, and it wouldn't change anything. The message would get there, the authorities would find Anise with time, and sooner or later, she would be gone. If it weren't for his terrible host, he could up and leave now. Flee south, out of the province, to Cyrodiil or Hammerfell. He could take the Pale Pass or the Great Red Road, and never would he lose a wink of sleep. For everything here was well in hand. A rustle sounded behind him, and he spun. He was remarkably quick to take up his bow for someone being so philosophical. Raw animal self-preservation seemed to hold more power than recently acquired stoicism. He scanned the foothills and thickets for a threat, but something felt different. That disturbance. It lacked caution. It sounded smaller, and far more brash than his imminent adversary. Then, like a gopher peering out of its hole, a black, pointy-eared head popped up behind a clump of twinberry. Titus! He called, relieved. I didn't think you'd actually come! Brown and ruddy shapes wound like smoke through the trees, and soon five wolves were stepping out onto the rock, watching him warily and sniffing at the ground. Titus led them, jet black, his hollow eye looking significantly more welcoming now that the hunter had a frame of reference for hollow eyes. Behind him followed a gray one with a golden blush on its chest, 
the ruddy one that had snapped at him before, and two smaller wolves he recognized as the young rascals who'd tripped him up last time. The hunter relaxed his arms and tilted his head, presenting no threat as he returned to his gear. Glad you're here. Really, he said as he rummaged around for the other five snares. If nothing else, you're more pleasant company than I've had all day. And I do mean all day. My buddy up there was in such a state this morning. Clearly woke up on the wrong side of the route. Titus's cycloptic gaze was levied squarely on the five looped cords in his hands. Oh, don't worry, the hunter assured, setting them on the ground. These aren't for you, I just need them for the... thing. Hey, can I interest you in a formerly undead squirrel? He tossed the latest of Anissa's spies to the wolf. Titus looked at him, then at the recently decapitated rodent. The wolf dipped its nose to investigate and sprang back, shaking its head and snorting. Normally composed, he stamped his feet like a pup shaking off a bee. The hunter grimaced. Hmm, that bad, huh? I figured as much. Putrefaction. He heard a low growl rising from the throat of the ruddy one as Titus took a lap around the rock. Hey, don't you start, he warned. I know you're dead. But the wolf only bared its teeth. You know you remind me of someone. Oblivious to the humor, the canine took a step closer. Fine, be that way, but just so you know, your name is now Shithead. The hunter grabbed a rabbit and tossed it to the angry wolf. It snatched the carcass out of the air and shook it for good measure. One of the younger wolves came up and grabbed for the morsel, but the older one held its head up high and growled as it moved away from the group. The twins made to follow. Let it go, the hunter called. Here, you can have this. The hunter tossed the second rabbit to the pair of ankle biters. Titus, he called, flinging the last of his prospective supper at the one-eyed wolf's feet. As the forest filled with the macabre whispers and moist pops of flesh being ripped and eaten, the hunter stood, snares slung over his shoulder, and started walking back to the wedged boulder. A few feet from it, he stopped and looked back to where the pack ate. Say, you wouldn't mind helping me fight an unkillable demon thing, would you? Titus paused and looked up from his meal, apparently well aware that he was being addressed. In that eye, the hunter sensed the words, What do you think? Yeah, that's what I figured, the hunter said and returned to his work. Several minutes later, the hunter was cautiously testing the improvised union. He had managed to pull it tight and incorporated some of the ropes reinforcing his pack. He was pretty sure it would hold, but pretty sure wasn't any comfort when dealing with survival. As for the strategic side of his setup, he was much more confident. No matter what direction his assailant approached from, the trap would work just about the same. Spikes or no spikes. Parking his rear nonchalantly atop the boulder, he looked back as the wolves milled around on the bluff. The one-eyed wolf was laying down pensively, its brow being licked by the gold-mantled gray. So if he's Titus, how about I call you Uriel? The pair glanced at him briefly, then returned to their idle affections. The ruddy wolf was stalking around the perimeter. Apparently, being the only one who hadn't had to share their rabbit had done little to pacify it. You're red, so I'll call you Eagle. The wolf growled at his words. Hey, I could always change it back to shithead if you're going to be that way. It was about that moment the youngsters wandered over and began sniffing at the ropes that bound the boulder. Oh, no you don't, said the hunter, jumping down to get in their way. No biting the ropes. The one on the left growled and yipped. The one on the right sniffed his leg. 
Shit, the hunter said, trying to think. I don't know any historical twins. So I'll just call you Lefty and you Righty. Feel free to trade amongst yourselves. Lefty chose then to walk around the back of Righty and adopt their name. Yeah, just like that. Suddenly, Titus's head shot up. He looked east, ears tall and attentive. In unison, the heads of the pack, including the hunter, did the same. The half-breed climbed up onto his boulder and stood, scanning the trees. Was this it? Had the beast finally caught up? Movement. Dark and distant. Not barreling across the land with leaping steps, but high, furling through the trees like a terrible cloud. The hunter readied his bow, squinting, puzzled, at the shadowy mass. He noticed two wolves had their tails tucked down between their legs. If they were nervous, he ought to be as well. The blackness came through the woods like the blanket of night falling upon them. It seemed to pay no heed to the branches and trunks in its path. It just moved closer and closer. A flutter. A brief, discernible movement in the haze. Wings. Black as a broken soul, trailing wisps of foul smoke. As they came closer, he saw the heads, bare bone, armed with wickedly hooked beaks. He jumped off the rock, ready to dive for cover, but the dread flock was not descending. It was rising with the land. Before he knew it, the rush of feathers was passing overhead. Righty was cowering under Uriel. Lefty was leaping futilely, trying to bite one of the apparitions out of the sky. The hunter knelt, arrow notched but feeling thoroughly useless at the moment. What were they doing? Where were they going if not after him? As the cloud drained upwards through the canopy, the hunter knew. No, he said standing upright. No! He looked around and met Titus's questioning eye. She figured it out! She's going after Bracknell! I can't... He paced, agitated about the rise, gathering his gear. I can't be here. I've got to, I've got to get up the mountain. I've got to get to Riverwood. I... I... He slung his pack as the answer hit him. He couldn't scale the mountain. The real choice was between assuming his friend was alive or dead. If he left him to die, then he needed to break cover and get to Riverwood himself. If he wanted a chance at stopping those phantoms, he had to go after a niece. If he could get to her, then the flock and the beast would be nothing. The memory of Bracknell's grief hit him once more. He must live. He had things to do. With that, his choice was made. The game was up. Now, they must have it out. Okay, he said, nodding to himself. Okay. That'll do then. Titus? But when the hunter looked to his furry companion, the wolf was no longer looking at him. They were looking past him. The hunter followed his gaze south. There... Out beyond the wall of stakes was the beast. It stood motionless, hollow sockets trained unshakably on him. One antler was broken at the hilt, and scratches like poor Scrimshaw covered its bony edges. The bears, it seemed, had put up a fight for the ages, and the beast, somehow, was radiating a cold fury. The scrabbling of paws on stone told him that the pack had bailed. He couldn't blame them nor could he afford to take his eyes off the abomination before him. Steadily, he stood and walked to the edge of the bluff. Come on, he said, beckoning. 
I've got places to be. The monstrosity looked then from him to the spikes. It scanned the bluff, seeming to take in the elevated position of the rock. Then it looked back to him and started moving, strafing left around the obvious trap. The hunter chuckled and shook his head. He didn't know what unsettled him more. The idea that this thing was a marauding automaton, task-driven and hateful, or moments like this when there was so clearly a thinking mind behind its movements. The hunter stepped with it as it circled, keeping the crevice and boulder at his back. What's the matter? He taunted. Scared of a little splinter? Hoping to induce a charge, he drew his bow and sent an arrow glancing off the beast's bony shoulder. However, the thing just kept flanking him. No worry or haste drove it. It seemed to have learned that charging recklessly would not serve its ends. So there it came, bone sinking into soil, then crunching into stone as it finally made its turn towards him. There was something eerie in its approach. All the urgency of a midsummer cloud and about as unassailable. He could sooner stop the sun from setting then stopped this advance. His heels found the edge of the crevice as the beast loomed larger and larger. Soon it filled his vision. Its presence seemed to consume the scenery just as it consumed souls. Then it stopped. He stood just beyond the reach of its long arms. But with a quick lunge, it could take him easily. Was it waiting? Did it suspect something? Had it come to parlay? Was it scared? It mattered not, the hunter decided. He might as well begin. Took you long enough, lardass, said the hunter, wondering briefly if the skeletal figure had a sense for irony. Then he stepped backwards, dropping into the crevice. It was a quick, relaxed motion. It had to be. No sooner had he begun to drop did the wicked claw strike out for him. It brushed a lock of his hair as it passed overhead, and the world went dim. Boots and hands skidded across the stone. He fell down the chimney, searching all around for traction. He landed hard and sunk into an awkward squat, shins and back wedged roughly against a rock. The claw obscured the treetops as it descended after him. Reaching behind, he found the small log that he had stored here earlier. Moving to the side, he raised it up like an offer to a lord. The searching points of the claw found the log and snatched it up. The hand began to withdraw, and just like before, it caught in the narrow crack of stone. The hunter didn't miss a moment. He took up the second instrument he had prepared, a slack length of reinforced rope fashioned in a wide noose, and flung it out just as the macabre fist came back down to reassess its predicament. He looped the rope around the wrist of his foe and pulled hard, cinching it tight. Time to go. He turned and crawled under the boulder, out the front of the crevice, and dropped into the field of sharpened stakes. Turning, he saw the beast take notice and lunge for him. But it was caught, arms still wedged down the crack. He bounced on the balls of his feet and shot away across the clearing, easily knocking over the sharpened stakes, proving them largely superficial in nature. The beast eventually figured out that it should let go of the log, and he saw it pull its arm out slightly before snagging again. It was leaning out over the edge, straining to continue the pursuit, its gaze never wavering. No longer was its prey ducking and dodging, winding and hiding. Now it ran so tantalizingly over open ground. The beast roared after him, pulling more and more. Slowly, it came to the front of the boulder, 
pushing against the face of the bluff, its long arm still bound around the back. The hunter heard it then, the gravelly belch of stone coming loose. He looked back. The boulder that had come to rest in that crevice eons before had been shifted. All bound up in ropes and rings, it tumbled forth, the wailing abomination caught beneath it. The cry cut off with a crunch. The hunter felt an impact beneath his feet so great he swore he'd left the ground. Dust erupted into the air and silence fell on that clearing in the shadow of the barrow. When the earthly cloud had settled, the hunter was nowhere to be seen. He had urgent matters to attend to. Feral beast he must be now that the dance was over. For the pit of blackness lay before him, a destination fit only for the shaking of wills and the unmaking of all things. The cold, white glow of a shooting star is not an uncommon sight in the heavens of Skyrim. The air is clear, and when paired with the tapestry of night, the sky is little more than a stage before which the mortals sit and take in the dramas of the Aedra and Daedra. Long ago, a red light fell through the veil of the realms and streaked across the sky. It was the heart of the god Lorcan architect of all Mundus, bound to fall in Morrowind and birth the Red Mountain. Tonight the rosy orange and lapis blue of the heavens was split by yet another bright streak of crimson. It wound its way between the stars just peeking out from their sleep of day. It fluttered and flickered, turning and burning, and landed on the thatched roof of Anissa's cabin. The thatching smoldered and soon smoke was rising from the rafters. The hunter lit two more arrows and deftly sent them into high arching paths towards the building. He stood atop the same rock that he and Bracknell had stood on when they first came this way. Only now, he stood tall instead of crouched. He stood more ragged, less armed, and several pounds lighter than before, but all the same, he stood. A sparrow fluttered onto the branch over his head, looked at the shack, then dropped down dead at his feet. He readied his next arrow, briefly assessing the sharpness of the iron head. He only had four of these left. He didn't want to set foot in the cabin, there was no telling what trap she might have in there. The plan was simple, flush and then kill. The rotting bird on the rock told him that the first part had gone well. The smoke furled up like fingers. The first light of real flame burst forth in the haze just as a dark figure emerged from around the structure. He calmly drew his arrow and centered his aim on a human for only the second time in his life. He paused, hesitating for just a moment. He needed to at least know it was her. As the figure stepped through the smoke, he saw a pale, balding head, a long, well-groomed beard, 
and furs finer than his and more well-kempt. It was Bracknell. His friend was clutching his bloody arm and hobbling towards him. Don't worry, he called out. I got her. Give me a hand here, quickly. The hunter loosed the arrow. It flew straight, whistling towards his friend's chest. Bracknell's hands shot out and the illusion faded in the blink of an eye. The arrow thudded into place and the knee staggered back. The hunter drew another arrow and took aim. He would shoot again even if she dropped. The job needed to be finished properly. Only she didn't drop. She didn't even waver. The hunter squinted and saw that the old woman's flesh had taken on a rough, gnarled texture, like the bark of an old oak tree. The arrow, he now saw, had not sunk in, but was protruding from near her sternum, the back of the iron head still perfectly visible. Well done, she said through gritted teeth. Well done indeed. He stayed his second arrow as she pulled the first out with a wooden fist. I apologize for the deception. It was quite rude of me. But so is setting my home on fire. She grinned at him, a kind, homely smile that radiated nothing but venom. You're quite impressive for a rat. I can't help but wonder what we could achieve together. The hunter didn't respond. His face was stoic, his aim drifting up from center mass to the spot between her eyes. Oh, I see. Anise crooned. If you can't pierce my hide, you'll rattle my brain. Once I'm unconscious, you can do what you wish. The hunter narrowed his eyes, setting his will against the intrusive voice. But I wonder, could you do it? Could you bleed me like a slaughtered boar when I pose no threat to you whatsoever? The back of his mind began to count the seconds. The longer she talked, the more time her pet had to catch up. He knew better than to think it was dead. Then why wasn't he doing what she said? Why wasn't he ending it? Was it only that she had been the one to say it? Something was bubbling up in him, a question more pressing than any he sought to answer. It caught a hold of the wind in his chest and snuck out with his next breath, hissing between his teeth. Why? Why? You want to know why? Why all of this? I've seen hundreds of those shamblers, creatures too, each one a whole life. Why? The old woman tilted her head. Why do you want to know? Do you think that will make this easier? Don't you dare test me. I think I've done a little more than test you, urchin. I've molded you. I've shown you parts of yourself you hardly knew were there. I know what you are deep down. I know what it is to seek power over this cruel world. The hunter glared past her words, grounding himself in the pain that lit up his severed finger. I don't seek power over anything. You cannot lie to me, even if you found a way to shut me out. I know what I saw. I saw the moment it hit you, the moment when you took your life into your own hands, and how dreadful it was, how sickening, until you felt it. You felt awake, alive, as if all before had just been a dream, a long, long sleep. 
Your words cannot reach me. You know nothing of my life. I know that if I put the same question to you, why, you wouldn't be able to answer me. The hunter grimaced and his fingers tensed on the bowstring. I know I've been like this for as long as I can remember. I was gifted with the potential to shape the world around me at will. But did I use it? No. The family I was born to was ignorant, mistrustful swine. I was forced to hide myself for their precious comfort. I gave up so much for them, even when the bandits came, even after I buried them. I survived. I lost everything, but I survived. I could have stopped it, but no. I didn't even think to use my gifts. Even after they were gone, I restrained myself. The world started taking me apart piece by piece until I met a man, honest and open. Took me for what I was and I was happy. I was glad to wallow in that blissful mundanity. Then the next thing you know, he's gone. And I could have stopped it, but my gifts had withered like grapes in the sun. Anise's eyes grew distant and glassy. A dark spot was slowly spreading from her chest, dampening her robes where his arrow had pricked her. The worst thing, really the worst thing about it, was the pity. Who were they to pity me? Did they not realize what I was capable of? So now you ask why. Why twist the world as it has twisted so many? Why wring it dry to take what is mine? I suppose why doesn't really factor into it. It's all just a natural consequence of becoming what I was meant to be. With that, the necromancer dipped her hands into the growing red spot on her chest, and suddenly amethyst lightning was arcing between her fingers. I will wait no longer. I will make full use of my gift. I am a niece raven wing, and the bones of Tamriel shall tremble under the steps of my horde. The hunter drew and fired, but Anise's head had dropped. She crouched, threading her hands into the soil at her feet, sending that purple lightning ricocheting, splitting, and spreading through the field of tilled dirt. The hunter fumbled with his next arrow. By the time he took it up, the earth below had begun rippling and tossing like a rough sea. Fingers without nails and heads without skin churned up from the soil like ingredients peeking out of a stirring stew. The army of ghouls, fifty strong at least, pulled themselves up into the world, their hollow ribs wrapped in all manner of patchwork armor. The dirt sloughing off their forms could just as easily be flesh in the twilight. The hunter aimed for Anise again, but she was obscured behind the haunting, slack-jawed mob. Assorted weapons, far past their prime, but no less troublesome, were held aloft in their chilled grips. The hunter stowed his bow and arrow and drew his short sword. He began backing up the stone. He would strike down at them, force them to clamor after him. Then a thought occurred. A memory of a vicious bolt of lightning being hurled his way. Up on this rock, he was an easy target. What's more, he'd be distracted, eyes cast down. If she was going to use the chaos to her advantage, why shouldn't he do the same? As if on cue a blast of flame shot out from the sea of bodies, he saw the flash and flinched, knees buckling and bowels loosening as it whizzed by. Okay, okay, he said, his voice growing in volume, trying to galvanize his body like a coachman eggs on his horse. 
There were too many. His limbs were going numb with apprehension, fingers gripping his sword so tight the tips were white, and still it felt too loose, too flimsy. He had to go around like before, strafe, harass, but the wave had crashed upon the rock and he was surrounded. What if he went back? What if he turned tail and ran for his life? Could he outrun the beast? What if neither of them made it to Riverwood? What if neither of them made it? This damn filth. This crime against the living. It was an offense. He was offended by the very existence of this wave of crimson muck before him. That woman, voice sweet as syrup, was everything he must rage against. And why not rage? Whatever would drive his bones to action, why not rage? Why not disgust? Why not the stubborn fucking belief that his friend was still alive? Ah! He screamed, digging his heel into the rock. He raised his sword, let out a second scream, and charged. Ah! Mingling with his second cry was a familiar howl. A firebolt rushed past as he sprinted down the rock. Gray and black shapes rushed into his periphery as he leapt into the crowd. He stamped his boot onto the face of a ghoul as he landed. He expected to hear a crunch as he drove it into the ground, but rather the skull sank noiselessly into the disturbed earth. He didn't have time to stab at the prone foe. He was busy blocking and ducking the hail of strikes that were immediately levied his way. His feet sunk in deep. It would be slow going here. The hunter kicked out, legs churning furiously as he navigated the perilous crowd. He parried a swinging mace and caught the weapon under his arm. Before the ghoul could draw back and pull him in, he hacked off the thing's arm, grabbed it by the throat, and jammed his blade into its gut. Spinning, he put the living corpse out as a shield between him and three other incoming threats. The ghoul in his hand snarled and clawed at him for a moment before a mace similar to its own knocked its head off from behind. The hunter was glad he had it at arm's length when two rusted swords stuck out between its ribs. Kicking the body's limp feet, he twisted it sideways, using its ribs to catch and wrench the rusty blades out of their owner's grips. He heaved the meat shield into the unwitting lap of the mace swinger and quickly beheaded the disarmed pair. Harsh snarling and snapping rang in his ears as he spun around, ready for the next engagement. To his surprise, he actually had some space to breathe. He had plenty of time to see the next two lunging at him and counter, slashing at their knees, grabbing with his offed hand, and stabbing at their necks. A harsh burning lit up on his back, and crying out the hunter turned on the attacker, disarming, grappling, and levering it into another group. No pain, he thought. No time for pain. But fuck, it burned. Again, he had more space than he felt he should. A flailing polearm drew his eyes down to a ghoul he didn't remember flooring. He skipped past the confusion and stabbed it, once in the chest and once in the eye. A flicker of motion, a wiggle and drop to his right. He moved that way and was met by a swinging axe. He blocked it hard, severing the hand at the wrist, but the momentum of the swing buried the axe in his right shoulder. He gritted his teeth. It wasn't bone deep. He stabbed the damn thing once, twice, three times. The sword was heavier now. Left. Something was coming from the left. He didn't have time to stop it. It was a once man with one eye and no top teeth. Sword drawn back low, ready to spill his guts on the forest floor. Damn, he thought. He'd really hoped it would be quicker than that. A black mass rushed in and knocked the thing's legs out from under him. 
The hunter leaned back as the errant thrust just missed his chin. The ghoul crumpled to the ground, limbs sprawling awkwardly in the loose soil. He emphatically put an end to its undeath and looked up. Titus? He said, aghast. The huge black wolf offered him little more than a glance in acknowledgement before bounding off, leaping onto another corpse. The hunter spun. What had begun as a roiling death trap had spread out into a wide melee. The architects? The wolf pack of Riverwood Valley. At least eight of them were tearing around the yard, running under legs and ripping into throats. He was positively dumbfounded for all of two seconds before there was another flash and the searing heat of arcane flame slammed into his left shoulder. He screamed, but the sound caught as his body seized in pain. All that made it out of his mouth were the bubbles hissing between his teeth. The ground came up to meet him and he was thankful for it. It was soft and cool. Whatever fire had threatened to engulf him was extinguished instantly as he rolled, coating himself in soil. He stopped rolling abruptly as he impacted a rough iron-plated boot. Looking up, he saw a sneering ghoul raising its war pick. Running on instinct, he reached around the back and slashed the vulnerable tendons above the heels. Shoving with his other hand, he sent the hollow one tumbling back. A growling snap sounded to his right, and the next thing he knew, a different corpse was being toppled. It fell right to him, head landing comically in his lap. It was once a woman. Wisps of long hair still clung to her decaying scalp. The pair gazed into each other's eyes a moment, dark brown and demilky white, a brief flight of romance in the forest of Bedlam. Then he covered her eyes and jammed his sword up through the bottom of her jaw. He rolled, aching to his feet, and stepped casually out of the reach of the crawling ghoul. He cast his gaze about, trying to make sense of this bizarre battle he found himself in the middle of. Where was Anise? A whooshing sound found his ears, and he leapt over a thrown axe bound for his unmentionables. He looked up to see a hollow one standing, almost sheepishly, without a weapon. Cursing how close he'd nearly come to dying a eunuch, he snatched up the axe and lobbed it back at its owner. However, it seemed he was better at throwing burning hunks of metal than axes. His throw sailed high over the ghoul's head. It looked at him, awkwardly for a moment, then shambled off after it. Suddenly, he perceived something. Amidst the battle of ghouls and wolves, there was a crowd. A dense throng clustered together, not making any real aggressive movements. A sword flashed into view, and he performed an unconscious parry and repost, running its owner through. Then he was sprinting for the crowd. It actually started giving ground as he approached, ducking and dodging through the melee. The ghouls formed a rough phalanx and presented a formidable wall of armaments. Veering to the side, he leapt onto a rock and sprung off of a tree, sending him flying over the wall and into the throng. As he descended, he saw her, a niece, skin utterly normal, eyes wide with surprise as he flew, arms splayed out like a glider. He swung his sword down at her neck. This was it! Then one of her grisly servants grabbed her from behind and pulled her back. His sword hit, cutting through her collar and down her chest, but it didn't hit anything vital. He knew it didn't. He knew he'd missed his shot. Oh well. Maybe she'd used up enough magic to make things easier on Bracknell. His knees landed on a pair of armored shoulders, flipping him forward onto his back. The rotting hands descended on him. He punched and elbowed, slashed and stabbed, kicked and flailed, but many an icy grip was soon clasped around his limbs. 
A sword appeared and made for his heart. His left hand shot out as the blade pierced him and caught the hilt, saving his life for the moment. His breaths came out in high, sharp whimpers, each keeping pace with his racing heart. His arm was at full extension. If he could just keep the elbow locked, he could live, but bend just a little and the sword would be his end. Hands grabbed his arm and tried to force the elbow to bend. He tried to bring his sword arm over to assist, but it had been pulled out away from him as the ghouls tried to force him to drop his weapon. They wrenched harder and he cried, both elbows creaking and popping in protest. A burning set in as he was cut on the thigh. A scowling face appeared above him, and a pair of sharp, cold thumbs started pressing into his eyes. He could swear that they were sinking, the whole lot of them, sinking down into the cold earth. He could barely hear the harsh barking over the sound of his own screams, but suddenly his sword arm was free. He stabbed up into the one trying to blind him. Next thing, the hands were pulled away and through blurry, bloodshot eyes, he saw the Hollow One's head clasped in the jaws of the red wolf he'd called Eagle. The doomed ghoul was pulled out of view, and the hunter twisted, lifting the blade away from his chest and guiding it to the ground with his own sword. He kicked and pulled, driving the blade deeper and bringing its owner into range. A quick stab, a kick, and a whole lot of swearing later, the hunter was stumbling to his feet, legs unsteady, drenched in blood, both crimson and black. He moved uncoordinated and listless, arms hanging heavy at his sides. The battle was blurry, and he sank to his knees, rubbing his eyes. What was that smell? A yelp rang out, and he perked up. Legs turning like the gears of a lumber mill, he surged forward to where he saw the wolf he'd dubbed Uriel whimper as his ear was caught in the cruel grasp of a hollow one. The hunter barreled into the damned thing, severing its hand as he did. Pinning it to the ground, he bashed and stabbed wildly. Technique and finesse were slowly draining with his blood. When he slashed at its throat, a black pair of jaws bit its head and thrashing pulled it right off the body. He and Titus looked at each other once more. He saw himself reflected in the glassy yellow of that one eye. He looked terrible. They both did. At some point, Titus had been cut badly on the ear, and blood was matting his fur down to his forepaw. What was that smell? Warm and familiar, yet alarming. Smoke. The light that lit this madness was not the twilight sky. The heavens were darkening fast. The flickering centerpiece to this macabre spectacle was the spreading candle of Anise's shack. The scattered remnants of the horde all stood around the yard, aimless for the moment at least. The trickle of smoke had grown into a thick, acrid column, bleeding seamlessly into the deepening night. Before this world of fire stood a niece, one hand clutching her bloody chest. She spoke, voice weak now, honey dried and cracking upon those words, ragged and weary from age and exhaustion. I will not ask how it ever came to this, my love, for I know the answer in exacting detail. She turned to him, face in shadow, eyes luminescent from some internal storm. You pest! She spat. You filthy pest! You damn urchin! 
I curse your name and all those you care for. Two days I've dealt with you. In two days you have done enough damage to set me back months, and now... She looked up at her burning home. And now... She repeated, voice losing its venomous bite. The necromancer looked down at the slick blood coating her hands. Her face dropped, suddenly sober and placid. You know this will not change anything, right? I know. There will be others like me. Like us. The twisted women on the mountain. The puppeteers behind empty thrones. Pain will mold them. Power will call them. Families and creatures and all precious things will be caught in between, innocent or not. It makes no difference. It never did. I know. And the gods made it like this. They cursed us with these lives thin as paper, left us these dreadful tools to change our stars, and damned us for using them. The hunter sighed. I know. You know? You know. Even if the best happens for you, they will not know what you've done for them. They don't need to. Why did you do it? No matter how thin the paper, we always have a say in what's written. And the book would be incomplete without its pages. So I'll do what I can, even if sometimes all the things I know in my heart aren't worth believing. You can do that? I'm not sure, but I will. Anise nodded. You are a young fool. We shall see how long you last. The hunter stood, staggering. So we shall. Then there's nothing left to say. No. You said you'd bring my end. Bring it then. To death we'll go with all the hatred and vengeance that was promised. With that, Anise rolled up her sleeves, revealing the glowing runes inscribed on her skin. Again, she dipped her hands into her own wounds and turned, thrusting them out towards the fire. The flames dipped and shifted as if clay molded by giant hands. Go, Titus, the hunter urged. Go! The wolf didn't move. To black! Anise bellowed. To fire! To oblivion! The flame curled into a spiraling tower of red and orange bands. Anise brought her arm up and back in a tall arc, guiding the tower as it bent down and rushed into the ground between them. Each band left a bright, fiery spot in the earth. As the lights dimmed, he realized it was a circle of glowing runes. The necromancer brought her hands low, palms up, and began to slowly lift them, the runes on her arms glowing so bright the hunter thought he could see the skin flaking off. The circle on the ground brightened as well and suddenly split wide into an unnatural pit of roaring inferno. The hunter watched, frozen to the spot, as Anise lifted her hands higher. Rising up out of the pit was a tall, feminine figure. Its curves would have been alluring were it not for the clear danger he felt from it. Its form was lithe and fluid, all the elegance of a licking tongue of fire condensed into a black charcoal harpy. She had taloned feet, and her clawed hands were crossed over her bare chest. Her lips would have been supple were it not for their harsh exterior, and her eyes were closed under tall, curling horns. 
Titus, you need to go, the hunter said, gripping his sword with both hands, not trusting either of them to do the job right. Again, the wolf stayed true, raising its hackles and baring its teeth threateningly. True to what? He wasn't sure. A quick glance around told him that the other seven wolves were all just as haggard and just as staunch. Anise let out a shout, brought her hands to her chest, and thrust them out once more. The charcoal woman's eyes burst open with the light of the sun, and her body ignited. Flame burst from every edge, running up her body like veins and cascading out as fiery hair behind her horns. Her mouth opened, and a breath slipped out so hot as to distort her features. Wings of fire flashed into being. She extended a clawed hand, and a gout of flame shot towards the hunter. Now, finally, the wolves ran. Titus was gone from his side in an instant, and he was glad for it. He knew not why they had come. Perhaps they thought him part of the pack, or perhaps they just felt that this was their fight as well. Whatever the case, this was beyond them. This was beyond him. The fire would brush him away as a hand brushes dust off a page. Move, he thought, and darted left, giving ground as he did. The rock, that was the most fireproof thing in the area. The spout of fire tracked him, the earth it touched turning to glass. A ghoul tried to head him off, flail swinging for his head. He ducked low and threw his arms around its waist. A sharp pain lanced through his hand, and he realized that he had just cut himself as his arms came together. Disregarding that embarrassment, he grappled the corpse, swung it around, and threw it into the oncoming torrent. Through squinting eyes, he saw the Hollow One disintegrate, flashing into bones, then to armor, then nothing. A blast of hot air sent him reeling back, and he fell onto the ground at the base of the rock. His sword flew out of his hand and clattered somewhere out of reach. When he looked up, the embodiment of Inferno was gliding leisurely after him, her legs bent ever so demurely one toe nearly dragging on the ground. A delicate flame rose from that proximity and trailed after her in a line so clear she could sear her name into Nern. Move! The hunter rolled over and started raking the ground with his fingers. Maybe if he could dig deep enough, he would be safe from the next blast. His little finger bumped something hard. A rock! He snatched it up and winged it at the harpy. She caught the stone, tossed it aside, and casually underhanded a fireball at him, twirling on the follow-through like this was all some pleasant dance. Move! The hunter flung himself to the side, hair singeing as the bolt flew by. Unslinging his bowl, he pulled his last two arrows, notching one and clasping the other between dry lips. He shot one right at the demon, and the second at a ghoul charging him with a battle axe. The second found its home in the ghoul's eye. The first fizzled to ash on the approach, before the iron point wedged itself ineffectually into the harpy's hard chest. She brought her arm back as if skipping a stone across a lake. His sword, where the heck had it gone? Would he throw it? Would he rush into the fire for some final glory? He didn't know. He willed himself to move right, looking for where it had landed. The flaming spirit led her throw expertly, and he had to jam his foot into the ground in a jumping stop to avoid being hit. The agile maneuver sapped what strength was left in his legs, and he crumpled onto his knees. Move! He didn't move. Move! The pain was omnipresent now, burning like he'd been lit aflame after all. His gasping breath seemed to be about as much effort as he could manage. He tried to sit up, 
but his head swam sickeningly and he slumped, drool and blood dripping down his chin. His eyes followed it down to his body. To put it simply, he was all used up. His torn furs were more of an ornament now than any form of garb. The dried blood from where the beast had raked his chest was covered with fresh blood from where he'd nearly been skewered through the heart. One shoulder was hewn, the other was badly burned. There was so much blood. He couldn't even remember getting half the wounds he now counted. One whole day. One whole day of running, trekking, fighting, building, and dying. It seemed that at this frenzied pace, one day was all he had in him. He glanced to his right and saw the rock he'd meant to hide behind. His own stark shadow stared back at him. The glow behind him grew like the light of dawn, and he turned to meet it. The infernal woman had floated to a stop a couple yards away. He gazed at her, the spittle, blood, and tears all drying in her presence. She raised a hand, and he stared back, somehow still defiant after it all. A spike of glowing blue suddenly burst through the harpy's chest, just below her charcoal sternum. Steam burst forth and obscured the scene as the hunter looked on, confused. The flame spirit's mouth opened in a scream like a kettle boiling in the distance. It groped at the foreign object before it withdrew and impaled her once more, higher this time. Through the steam he saw her flames flickering and fading. She spun away from him and he saw embedded in her back the bright gold pommel of a sword. And beyond that, down on one knee, clutching his burned hands in pain, slick as a river rat from sweat, was Bracknell. He surged forth, clasping the sword and yanking its crystalline blade free. The harpy turned back to him, something wild in those flaming eyes. He turned the blade downward, false finger holding true, leapt, and with both hands drove the glacial weapon through the inferno's neck and into her chest. The force of the blow brought his foe to the earth, her knees buckling as his before, the fire of her form waxing and dying. Over the shoulder of his fallen adversary, he met Bracknell's eyes. His mouth worked silently for a moment before he managed and exhausted. Hey! The Nord nodded in return. Where is she? As if in answer to that question, a high cackle rang out from over by the burning cabin. Seemingly spurred on by that voice, all the horde moved to hem in the pair. Bracknell readied his old soldier's bow and took aim at Anise. An unexpected motion caught the hunter's eye. He looked down to see the charcoal face had turned up to him, mouth smirking, eyes flashing bright once more. Boom! An explosion rocked the forest, ricocheting off the throat of the world and slamming back down like a clap of thunder. The hunter and Bracknell were thrown in opposite directions. The horde was scattered by the blast of wind. The hunter's flight ended when he hit something heavy and armored. He and the unfortunate Cushion tumbled over each other and settled in a heap. His world was settling dust and a high ringing in his ears. He lay still as death for a moment, then coughed, emitting a gray puff of ash. When he was finally able to open his eyes, orange embers danced about his vision. They floated above him, waving hither and thither, neither sailing away nor settling. 
It was several difficult breaths later that he realized the embers were actually the smoldering tips of his own hair. His face felt like a pillow. He supposed that was a mercy. He didn't really want to know what had actually happened to him. Something grabbed him by the throat and he reached for the fingers, prying them off. Cold eyes brushed his cheek and he was able to focus his eyes enough to see the cool glow of that blade that had felled the fire demon. It was still in his hand, a fact made all the more remarkable by the state of said hand. His false finger was sundered and two of his digits were bent at very odd angles. The only thing it seemed that had kept the sword in his palm was a thin layer of frost lining the joining with his skin. With that freezing blade, he stabbed casually at the owner of the hands throttling him and rolled clumsily to his knees. He cast his eyes around. Everything through his right eye was tinted red. The clearing was nothing but a dust cloud now. Ash falling gently, with his deafness it all felt like the first midnight snow of frostfall. He spotted Bracknell, a black and brown pile curled up maybe thirty feet away. He called, but he couldn't hear his own voice. Brack. The shape stirred, and after a moment to the hunter's relief, a gray head popped up and peered around. Brack. I've, I've got your sword! He shouted, slurred, and punch-drunk. Still, his voice was only a muffled hum to his ears. Bracknell spotted the glow of the blade and waved at him. His hand seemed intact. That was good at least. Motion. Movement there in the settling dust. Something huge was coming at them, leaving swirls high in the cloud. A single antler loomed into focus. Brother, look out! The hunter screamed, his hearing just starting to come back. His friend motioned to his ears and shook his head. He pointed with the sword. Bracknell stood up and took a couple staggering steps towards him. A massive claw cut the smoke and swatted him away. The hunter's friend flew high into a tree, hitting with a sickening crunch, his body breaking upon the wood before dropping out of sight. No! The hunter was on his feet, sword clasped in both hands, no memory at all of how he got there. The beast roared at him hatefully, its thirst for destruction far from sated. Before the pair could clash, a volley of arrows clattered into the abomination's side several of them piercing that thrumming black core holding it together. The beast flinched and roared in the direction of this fresh assault. That is! By the gods, there's undead as well! Steady, men! Steady! Spread out! Keep his attention divided! Pike's up front! Vandal, with me! Alvor, take out the shamblers! Over the rock came a small stampede of yellow sashes. Mixed into them were blue shirts, beige dresses, and black aprons. Riverwood had come. The beast turned to the oncoming swarm of guards and lashed out like a cornered dog. Meanwhile, the villagers descended on the remnants of the necromancer's horde. Perhaps they would have counted the hunter among the walking dead. But he was nowhere to be seen. The necromancer was circling the fire, still holding her wounded chest. If she could get to the basement, she could spin this. The peasants had come, but maybe she could still bend their minds steer the blame away from her. As she staggered, breath harsh from the smoke, a faint blue glow caught her eye. She turned and saw the urchin step out of the haze. Half burned, 
black with blood and one leg so mangled she wasn't sure how he was holding himself up. Clasped in his hands was a weapon not quite like any she'd seen before. A golden hilt of Colovian make, the kind she hadn't seen since she was very young. With a crystalline blade made, it seemed of unmelting ice. It hummed and hissed, seeming to be alive with a dozen blizzards. The hunter looked at her now, one eye almost swollen shut. How? She said incredulous. How are you still alive? In those eyes, she saw no mind that she could bend, no will that she could break, no hate that she could deflect. Those eyes were empty. His dark form stepped unstable, but unstoppable. His were the footsteps of doom. Damn you! She shouted, putting her hands out and sending a firebolt at him. He raised his sword up just in time to block it, and the pair of them disappeared into a cloud of steam. Anise cast her eyes about desperately. She'd lost him. How had he managed that? Suddenly a glow rose to her right, and she thrust out a hand, fire gathering in the palm, the runes on her arm burning bright. The luminescent sword twirled in the gloom, a quick motion like it was flicking something. Then, like a fruit falling from a tree, her hand fell off the end of her arm. The necromancer's mouth worked silently, the pain and shock offset by fear and fascination at the ice-covered stump. The hunter briefly wondered if a goodbye was in order. Deciding against it, he ran a knees through the heart. She twitched sickeningly for a moment, unable to breathe. Then her face split into a grin, a sick convulsion, a terrible death mask. Too tired to be phased, the hunter wrenched the blade, twisting it with a squelching pop. Ice began to spread from the wound, covering Anise's robes, skin, and features. As it spread down her limbs, he saw she was holding a knife to his ribs. It was pressed into one of the few remaining scraps of his furs. As the ice consumed it as well, he saw that the stubborn hide had stopped the point from pricking him. He blinked, looked up into the face of Anise the Necromancer. Seeing her pain, her hate, her form withered by age, twisted by dark magics, a crack split that face in two. He withdrew the sword, and the woman shattered into a thousand pieces. Some to the flames, some to the garden. The necromancer was gone. The hunter could hear nothing for a moment to save the sound of his own labored breathing. Then a voice rang out from the haze of the yard. The monster is dead! We did it! A raucous, adrenaline-filled cheer lifted up the forest night. Then another voice. How many did we lose? None, sir. Burke broke his arm and Lamberjug got splashed pretty bad. It was Gloston. He speared through the heart. I saw it myself. Where's Bracknell? Didn't he run ahead? Bracknell. The name shook the hunter out of his stupor. He had to find Bracknell. His friend was in trouble. His friend was... His friend was... The fire at his back, he took several slow steps towards the crowd, sword still dangling loosely from his broken hand. Alvor, behind you, there's one more! Blasted things, I... Wait. The hunter's legs gave out, and he crumpled into a sitting position. Wait, I... I think I hear breathing. Watch my back. 
A dim shape towered over him as he gasped in breaths, trying desperately to fight the lightness in his head. That's... By the gods! Stranger! Who? Stranger, Hod! The kid they pulled out of the river! How can you tell? I never forget a face. Exactly, so how can you tell? Healer! We need a healer, quick! He felt his legs trying to churn. The muscles were twitching in spastic ripples. They were following the last order they'd been given. He rolled and tried to push himself off the ground, but he couldn't. His toes wiggled trying to find traction, but he was sunk now, laying flat in the dirt. The light feeling in his head spread to the ends of his limbs and bounced back as empty void. I don't think Delphine will be able to fix this. We just need to get him back to town. The guards sent word to Danica Pure Spring in White Run. Just help me. Healer! The void climbed up his neck into his head, and he knew no more. No dreams, no darkness, no visions. He faded away, absent from the material and ethereal alike. Gone. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Skyrim Audio Adventure. I'd like to give a shout out to Carol Hicks, who reprised and completed her role as Anise Ravenwing. I am so happy with how this came out, and it was just a joy to work with her. Another shout out to my guy Chi Lee, who took up the bit role of one of Whiterun's finest. You can look for him in the next episode as well. The fact that I am able to make any of these episodes is a kind of bizarre miracle, and I'm always just floored at the end of the process. Like, how did I do that? And then to come back to this, and you're all there being supportive, and it's just one of the coolest things about my life, and I mean that genuinely. On the subject of cameos and voice acting, I've been thinking about handing the role of Ayala the Huntress off to somebody. I've been doing it myself this entire time, and I can totally keep doing it, but if anyone out there is interested in playing the role of Ayala the Huntress, I'd be interested in hearing your interpretation of the character. We are one episode away from finishing the first season, and this next episode is going to present a whole different set of challenges, and I look forward to taking them on. Thank you, all of you, for just sticking around and being you. I... <laughs> and and once again thanks for listening <laughs>